1943. The Allies are waging a full-fledged war against Germany. Bloody battles are being fought in Europe, the Atlantic, and the Pacific. But there is yet another threat to the Allies. South America is coveted ground for the Germans, and a Nazi spy ring is working steadily behind the scenes to take over the continent. The opening of a front in South America would spread the Allies too thin and could easily lead to defeat. But someone else is also working in the shadows. Elizabeth Friedman, our codebreaker extraordinaire, is about to give these Nazi spies a run for their money. I'm Kristen, and this is Broadly Underestimated, the podcast dedicated to understanding the underestimated aspects of our lives. Every object, institution, historical event, even the most mundane, has its own revolutionary story. And it's often the underestimated women behind those stories that have shaped life as we know it today. Now, as we established in the previous episode of this code-breaking series, Elizabeth Friedman was simply a code-breaking rock star. She and her husband, William, built the foundation for government code-breaking in the United States, and she took down the mafia during Prohibition. In 1939, Elizabeth was still working with the Coast Guard, running her own code-breaking unit like the boss that she was, decrypting messages of smugglers. But the start of World War II disrupted smuggling activities, and there was no longer a vast quantity of smuggler communications to decrypt. And so, Elizabeth shifted her focus to new international military communications coming in over the airwaves. But by the spring of 1941, she had taken on an even more harrowing responsibility, preventing the Nazi takeover of the South American continent. She had begun decrypting messages where a couple of names appeared over and over again, Sargo and Luna. As Elizabeth analyzed the messages, she realized that these people were part of a Nazi spy ring operating secret radio stations in Brazil and Chile that transmitted encrypted messages to Germany. Seeing the rise of Hitler's fascist government in Germany, the U.S. government declared a focus on preventing the spread of fascism starting in 1940. Nazi infiltration in South America was an incredibly concerning prospect for the U.S. government. There was intense fear that Nazi Germany would leverage its significant population of German immigrants in South America to expand Nazi interests throughout the continent. If South American countries sided with Hitler, the U.S. would be forced to defend itself from home instead of waging battles at sea or in Europe. American troops and resources were already spread thin over Europe, the Atlantic, and the Pacific. If another front were opened, it would be a disaster. So we now know some things about Sargo and Luna. Sargo was a man named Johannes Becker. Becker was a Nazi spy, but not just any Nazi spy. He was the head of an intricate and effective spy network operating throughout South America. His work focused on both destabilizing governments in favor of fascist movements and providing the positions of allied ships off the South American coast. He was a busy guy. And like any good spy, the guy was fantastic at networking, and he put this skill to use when he built his network by persuading German immigrants in South America to spy for Germany. 
Before implementing radio communications with their headquarters in Berlin, he also built an effective courier system by convincing employees of commercial airlines to smuggle spy messages on their flights to Germany. But when commercial flights to Germany were shut down due to Allied pressure, Becker had to find an alternative. And this is when he established three radio stations, two in Brazil and one in Chile, to communicate with his superiors. And Luna was the code name for Gustav Utzinger, the network's head radio operator. Now, enter Elizabeth, halo shining brightly, angels singing in the background. So when Elizabeth started decrypting these messages, she, like she always did, started putting all of the pieces together and started to develop an understanding of the network that existed and the main players within that system. But what she also did while decrypting these messages was to uncover plots to sink Allied ships. One of Sargo's duties was to relay the positions of Allied ships off the coast of South America so that German U-boats and ships could ambush and destroy them. So as Elizabeth decrypted these messages, containing information about the location of Allied vessels, she rushed to get the information to the appropriate people so that evasive action could be taken, and those ships could avoid being picked off by German ships and U-boats. This is some of the most important work that Elizabeth did during the war. It saved countless lives and also kept the lines for the movement of supplies and troops open. One of the most notable instances of this involved the Queen Mary, which was a British ocean liner turned supply ship. Fun fact, the Queen Mary is now a stationary hotel docked in Long Beach, California, but during the war, it was the largest Allied supply ship and also one of the fastest. Because of its size and speed, Hitler had put a price on the head of the ship, offering a reward to the U-boat captain that took her down. When, in March of 1942, German messages showed information about the Queen Mary, which was carrying more than 8,000 men on that particular trip, Elizabeth's decrypted messages were passed on to the ship's captain, just in time to avoid a confrontation with the U-boats that were lurking off the coast of Brazil. Her quick work saved 8,000 lives that day, and again, as the war continued, her efforts kept the Allied supply line open and out of danger. Snaps for Elizabeth. Now, let's move on to another hurdle that Elizabeth had to jump through here. So early on, the messages being sent back and forth between Sargo and his superiors were written mostly in familiar types of ciphers that Elizabeth was well-versed in cracking. But ostensibly, Sargo's spying had no idea that their communications were being cracked by U.S. codebreakers. And this, of course, is exactly how Elizabeth and her unit wanted it. The longer you can observe the enemy without them knowing, the more opportunities you have to learn how they're set up, how they work, and what their plans are. But if they catch on to the fact that you're listening in, they will cut you out of their communications by changing the code or method of communication. And if you can catch up with them again, you have to start all over and crack into a new system before you can read their communications. So the best way to react to the information you receive in intercepted messages is to keep listening, gather as much information as you can, and if you have to take action, do everything within your power to avoid letting the enemy know that you have hacked into their conversations. A prime example of exactly what not to do happened in February and March of 1942, when Elizabeth decrypted messages from Sargo's ring detailing concerns about police arresting suspected Nazi spies in Brazil and Chile. 
As it turned out, the FBI had taken a sledgehammer to a situation that required a scalpel when they initiated a push for Brazilian authorities to arrest suspected Nazi spies. But the arrest didn't cause the death blow to the network that the FBI had hoped. And suddenly, Sargo's network went dark. Elizabeth and her unit were shut out. By the time Sargo's network came back online, all their codes had changed and they were much more complicated. But being the queen that she was, by the end of that year, Elizabeth had broken back into all of Sargo's new communication circuits, except for one. This one was different. And Elizabeth suspected that it was being enciphered with an Enigma machine. So we will get into the Enigma Kraken that was released on all Allied Codebreakers in just a moment. But first, I wanted to take a second to talk about what was happening in the wider world of codebreaking in the U.S. at that moment. Starting in 1942, a wave of young women went to Washington, D.C. to take jobs as codebreakers for the government. Thousands of these women worked around the clock decrypting German and Japanese ciphers. Leading up to the spring of 1943, Elizabeth's team of Coast Guard codebreakers had worked out of a Treasury Department building, but they were then asked to transfer their office to another Washington, D.C. government office called the Naval Communications Annex. Now, there are two significant things about this move. First, it disrupted Elizabeth's workflow, which I'm assuming would have been very stressful. She worked very hard to stay on top of all the messages that came her way, knowing that the information she received was often time-sensitive and could literally mean life or death. She tried to keep up with decrypting the messages from Sargo's network that were written in the code systems that she had tapped back into after the blackout. But on top of that, she was still trying to crack into those messages she suspected were being generated by an Enigma machine. So, man... I thought I'd had some stressful work days, but I stand corrected. The second significant thing about Elizabeth's move to the Naval Communications Annex was that it put her in direct communication with many of the young female codebreakers working there. Now, Elizabeth didn't talk to these women about her work. Oaths of secrecy were respected between different codebreaking units, and those within the same unit were even forbidden to talk about their work outside of their offices. Elizabeth held so many secrets throughout her life, and even though both she and her husband William were at the center of important government codebreaking work, they didn't speak to each other about the specifics of their jobs. But Elizabeth socialized with some of the young women, inviting them to her house for tea or joining them for dinner. But what was significant about Elizabeth being in close proximity to young codebreakers was the opportunity for these women to see another woman being a respected leader, an expert in her field, and quite simply, a boss. The young women knew who she was. She was legendary in the code-breaking world, after all. And having contact with such an amazing pioneer in a technical field must have been perspective-altering. But once Elizabeth settled into her new office, it was back to work and back to that pesky Enigma cipher. So German codes were often created using the legendary Enigma machine. If you aren't familiar with it, the Enigma was a complex system of typewriter, plugs, and rotors that created so many potential code outcomes that Enigma messages were virtually impossible to crack. The operating word here being virtually. For German military Enigma machines, a specific setting was assigned for each day of the month. 
This meant that each of the three rotor wheels was set to a specific position, and that a set of plugs was set to a specific position. Each setting was only used for a 24-hour period, which would change at midnight each night. The complex nature of the machine meant that there were hundreds of millions upon hundreds of millions of possible solutions. And by the way, that number is an understatement. So the sheer number of possible solutions, combined with the fact that the setting changed every 24 hours, made breaking the Enigma code often feel like a futile exercise for codebreakers. The Enigma was so efficient and so complex that a codebreaker couldn't test out all the possible solutions within the 24-hour period before the settings changed. Until a British mathematician named Alan Turing designed a computer that could process the daily potential solutions within a matter of hours. By the way, if you haven't seen the movie about this called The Imitation Game, I highly recommend it. So, after midnight German time each night, Enigma code-breaking units in England and the U.S. would wait for the first German intercept to come through, then get to work making a best guess, or crib, about what the message contained. These cribs were hypothesized based on a number of variables, like where the message was coming from, the time of day, number of characters in the message, and frequency of messages coming from that call sign or location. Wartime military communications tended to include predictable terms, even if they were enciphered and couldn't be immediately understood. For example, a message that was sent every day from the same call signal from the same location at sea could potentially be coming from a static weather ship, and therefore the term weather forecast in German would be included in the message. So a codebreaker could use the term weather forecast as their crib to test against the code. Yet another thorn in the codebreaker sides was that the Enigma didn't do just straight letter-to-letter -letter substitutions, so you couldn't count on the letter A being represented by the letter S throughout a message, or the letter T being represented by the letter G. Each time a letter was punched into the Enigma typewriter, a letter would be enciphered individually, and the only way to decipher the message was to know what exact settings the rotors and switchboard plugs on the machine were set at. Based on their cribs, the codebreakers would enter potential setting options into a version of Alan Turing's machine, which would process potential connections between enciphered letters within the parameters that the codebreakers had set into the machine using the plug system. The machine's dials, or drums, would cycle through thousands upon thousands of cipher options. If the right setting combination was found, the machine would stop running. This was typically not a quick process. At British Codebreaking Headquarters at Bletchley Park, their hope each day was to have the correct settings identified by breakfast after the daily setting changed at midnight, meaning that it was not unheard of for this process to take at least six to eight hours. From there, codebreakers could decipher German intercepts until midnight that night, until the process started all over again. In 1943, the U.S. produced more of Turing's computers in order to assist in deciphering as many German intercepts as possible. Many of those women who moved to Washington, D.C. to work as codebreakers worked on Enigma ciphers and used Alan Turing's machine to crack them. The women who worked on German codes had a fascinating but harrowing job. Many of them were essentially involved in a stealth operation, including German and Allied U-boats and submarines. The messages they deciphered revealed locations of German U-boats and ships, which allowed the Allies to both attack and avert being attacked. 
At the beginning of the war, German U-boats had wreaked absolute havoc on U.S. seafaring vessels. They stalked the U.S. coast and took out military ships at port and also ambushed ships in the open sea. But finally, with the intelligence they received from cracked German Enigma communications, the Allies had a leg up, and the Germans never knew that their Enigma code had been broken. But Elizabeth didn't have one of Alan Turing's machines at her disposal. She had actually cracked an Enigma code in 1940, but the code she had worked on was created by an older and less sophisticated version of the machine. So when these confounding Sargo messages started coming through, she knew the telltale signs of an Enigma cipher, and she also knew some methods to try to crack it. The problem was that the cipher was more sophisticated than the one that she had cracked in the past, but luckily, not quite as resistant to her magic as the military version of the Enigma machines tended to be. So allow me to gush yet again about Elizabeth's prowess with these codes. Elizabeth ended up cracking these Enigma messages by hand. Can this woman be any cooler? Again, the messages she handled were written using a slightly less intricate version of the Enigma than what the British and other Enigma code-breaking units were dealing with, but not much less. Let's just take a second to acknowledge the woman's brilliance here. Okay. So the fact that messages were enciphered using an Enigma machine meant that they were sensitive. They weren't just your average weather reports. Now, what's fascinating about the information Elizabeth found in these messages was how much it revealed about the true political dynamics in South America at that time. Germany saw South America for its political possibilities, and the Enigma messages reflected that. Elizabeth decrypted communications referring to a secret agreement that had been made between Sargo's spy ring and the Argentine government. Argentina would both protect the spies from the FBI or any other allied agency, and would also share intelligence about the United States, in exchange for the spies working to expand Argentine influence throughout South America, with the ultimate goal of overthrowing existing governments to install regimes that were more amenable to fascism. Thanks to the Enigma messages, Elizabeth and the U.S. government knew about this agreement, but the problem was that they couldn't come out and confront Argentina about it without giving away the fact that they were intercepting German spy communications. So what to do? Well, by October of 1943, they caught a lucky break. Elizabeth's unit intercepted a message confirming that Osmar Alberto Helmuth, who was an Argentine naval officer, had been duped by Sargo into sailing to Europe to negotiate a weapons deal for the Argentine government. Argentina was afraid that Brazil would try to invade them and hoped to obtain weapons from Germany. Helmuth was the perfect vessel to create a situation where the Allies could call Argentina out on their relations with Germany. If they could take Helmuth into custody and then claim that he had confessed to Argentina's dealings with Nazi spies, they could put pressure on Argentina without revealing their code-breaking efforts. And so, in November of 1943, Helmuth was apprehended by British authorities during his travels. When Helmuth was interrogated, he eventually gave up information about the Argentine government's activities with Sargo's ring. But more shockingly, he revealed Sargo's true identity as Johannes Becker. This incident soon became public, and Argentina folded to the pressure. On January 26, 1944, Argentina announced that they were severing ties with Germany and Japan. And with that, the Nazi threat in South America essentially disappeared. 
Elizabeth and her unit had provided the intelligence that brought down the Nazi threat to an entire continent. And all this was carried out in a way that the Germans had no idea that their spying codes had been broken. And before the dust settled, Sargo went into hiding and never rebuilt the network again. Mic drop for Elizabeth, yet again. Elizabeth's work and that of her code-breaking unit during the war kept Nazi influence in South America at bay and saved countless Allied lives while ensuring that lines to move supplies and troops remained open. This critical work kept the Allies going. After the war, Elizabeth stayed on to organize the messages and paperwork from her days of decrypting smuggling messages. When the task was complete, she recommended that her Coast Guard code-breaking team be dissolved, since there was no longer a need for it now that the war was over. So, on September 12, 1946, she said goodbye to the world of code-breaking. But code-breaking didn't say goodbye to her. Elizabeth remains one of the most influential figures in code-breaking history. A great mind, a pioneer, a leader, and a fearless, strong woman. And now, it's time for a segment I call The Stacks. Doing research is one of my favorite things to do. The more you learn, the more the puzzle pieces of the world start to come together. So I want to take you into the stacks of the library with me to share favorites of the books, documentaries, movies, interviews that I think you would enjoy if you want to learn more about this topic. One of my favorite sources of information about Elizabeth Friedman was a series of taped interviews from 1974. The interviews were performed by the George C. Marshall Foundation in Lexington, Virginia. As of the recording of this podcast, the recordings of a set of those interviews, as well as transcripts of others, are available on the George C. Marshall Foundation website. It was amazing to hear Elizabeth's voice and to get more of a sense of her personality as she spoke about her work and life experiences. So if you are now as Elizabeth Friedman obsessed as I am, I recommend listening to one or all of the tapes to get a deeper sense of who this incredible woman was. But our journey into the work of female codebreakers in World War II is far from over. Tune into the next episode in this series to find out more about the thousands of women who went to Washington, D.C. to break enemy codes. Elizabeth's decimation of the Nazi threat in South America allowed the U.S. to continue to focus all military efforts on the Pacific, Atlantic, and in Europe, which set up our other amazing female codebreakers to help create one of the biggest deceptions in military history. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time on Broadly Underestimated.